It's a privilege to speak to specifically the graduates this evening and to all of you. I want to read a passage out of Mark chapter 8. You're uh, welcome to turn there. Mark chapter 8. After Jesus healed a man from Bethsaida in an interesting two-stage pattern, it says in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8 that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he questioned them, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, saying, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Graduates, living for Jesus Christ is the most exciting life you can live. It will surpass your wildest imaginations. God is great and good and full of mercy and loving kindness. Living for Him is the only thing that will satisfy you in this life. My wife and I were were walking through the mall about a week ago and I passed by a recruiting office for the Marine Corps. No other branch of the service, just the Marine Corps. And there was a sign on the window and it said, We are not accepting applications, only commitments. I think that also fits the radical call to following Jesus Christ. He's not accepting just applications to try this, see if it works. Only commitments to follow him for the rest of your life, even to the very end. I want to talk to you about a, a, a young woman who happens to be the personal hero of my wife. Her name is Darlene Dibler Rose. This young girl grew up um, witty, bright, seemed like her future was uh, just going to be great. She grew up in a good old Midwestern town of Boone, Iowa. And at 10 years old, she, she thought that, that God had called her to the mission field, and that desire never left her for the rest of her life. In her college years, she met Russell, and he also had the call to missions, and the two of them married. And soon after college, they headed out with some other young couples to Papua New Guinea and to the Isle of Salibs. And they set up a little mission on the island of Salibs, and everything was going great. She was so excited to be a part of God's mission. But in one short day, everything turned for the worst. 
World War II came to the West Indies, and the Japanese invasion included the island of Salibes. They swiped down jungle and, tr- and village, including their little village where they stayed. Darling threw some of her necessities, basic necessities, into a pillowcase and ran out the door. Her husband was being carted up in a, in a, in a truck ready to head for a concentration work camp. And as she reached up to give him this pillowcase of just some soap and things, with tears running down her eyes, she gave it to him and he said, Now remember, Darlene, one thing. God said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. She saw the truck drive away. There was only one thing coursing through Darlene's mind at that moment. It wasn't God's presence. It was utter abandonment. Here she was, 25 years old. You'll be there in just a few years, graduates. And here she utterly abandoned. Her husband gone. She's being surrounded by Japanese soldiers ready to take her and the other women to a concentration camp of their own in Kempili. She was there for about a year in this concentration camp and she received a note. Her husband died from dysentery, it read. With tears streaming down her face, all she could scream out was, What about now, Lord? What about now? Are you really with me? Here, I'm doing what you called me to do. What I felt in my heart to do for you since I was ten years old. To follow you on the mission of your son, Jesus Christ. To live for you. To preach the gospel. And I'm abandoned. I'm in a prison camp. And my husband's died. I'm 26 years old. Nothing seemed to make sense. You know, as much as she tried to strain through the frustration, she just couldn't clearly see what the Messiah's mission clearly looked like. There was too much pain, too much suffering at this time. So you and I may struggle to clearly understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. As we go through life, we're going to be ridiculed. As a pastor, what are we going to do if you're a youth pastor when the guy down the street is preaching something contrary to the gospel, but he's driving a Mercedes-Benz and you're driving a beat-up Toyota? What are you going to do when, when a child dies or or somebody's mad at you in your congregation for preaching the gospel truth. Or if you're in college and your professor stares you down and says, creationism is stupid. Anybody who believes in that is ridiculous. To believe that God actually created you? Come on, give me a break. They're going to laugh at us. When you share the gospel to uh, some friends in a cafeteria at a college or university or at Starbucks, and they make fun of you, or they verbally abuse you, or possibly physically persecute you in the future. It could happen in this country. What are you going to do? In that moment, who is Jesus to you? Who is the Christ you're following? The disciples of Jesus Christ didn't understand in Mark 8 what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. So in Mark 8... 22 through 34, Christ decides he's going to unveil for them and for us what it really means to follow Jesus Christ. 
to be in the mission of our Messiah. Turn with me again to Mark 8. Look down here. In verse 22, we see this, this illustration, this, this healing. But it illustrates what Christ is trying to show his disciples. Sight is analogous to understanding, oftentimes in the New Testament. So Jesus heals this man from Bethsaida. But first, we notice the man's blind. He can't see anything. All is inky darkness. This relates to the first question Jesus asked his disciples. Jesus went out, and along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea. And he questioned them, and he said, Who do the people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets. They could not see that Jesus was the Messiah at all. Spiritual blindness is seeing Jesus as anything less than the Messiah. This is the state we all found ourselves in before God's grace poured into our lives, is it not? We shook our fists at God in rebellion as we came out of the womb. We were totally depraved, rejecting God from the very get-go. And as soon as we could, as little babies, we said no to our parents, just like Hudson is starting to figure out, our little baby. As soon as they figure out how to say something, it's, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to follow Jesus. So we're, our sin nature comes out. But God poured into our lives. But we were blind. And the people were blind. They thought Jesus was just one of the prophets. Wasn't truly God. Now, verse 23, so Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and he said, I see men like trees. He could see more than ever before in his life. He could see something. He could see light. He could see shapes, color probably, but he couldn't quite make it out. It wasn't clear. This relates, I believe, to the second question Jesus asked his disciples here in this story. He says, and he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. The construction here in the Greek emphasizes you. You actually comes the start of this phrase. You. This is the important question. You. What am I to you? And it seems like for the first time, Peter gets it. Because he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. But something is not quite right. Because immediately, it says in verse 30, that he warned them to tell no one about him. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Look down at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter starts to rebuke the one he has just called the Messiah, the one he has just called the, the one we've all been waiting for, the anointed one of God. Jesus, you are that one, the Christ. And he turns around and rebukes Jesus. Because he doesn't quite see. What doesn't he see? For him, 
The Messiah meant that they were going, the disciples were going to have present earthly power, prosperity, wealth, acceptance, favor, glory for them now. But Jesus is saying, no, God's plan, the Father's plan for me right now is to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And Peter's saying, wait a minute, the crowds don't want to hear this. No, 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 this is going to be bad publicity, Lord. Now listen, no, no, you've got, you got to reconstruct this message. This isn't, stop here. No. But Christ, in turn, rebukes him. And seeing his disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The disciples could not see what the will of God was for them. Do we not see what the will of God is for us now? The gospel does not promise earthly prosperity. It doesn't promise your best life now. Future, yes, in a heavenly kingdom, in God's establishment of an earthly kingdom in the future, at the return of Jesus Christ, yes, but not now. Now the plan is suffering before glory. This is something that the world doesn't want to hear, that sometimes I don't want to hear. It's hard to realize that the gospel does not necessarily say, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to even have my basic necessities provided for. Things may go bad. Just like Darlene Dibler-Rose realized, her husband's gone, she's alone, and now a widow at 26 years old. It's hard to grasp, isn't it? That this, in a way, could be what the mission of our Messiah is. Clear spiritual sight is understanding the Messiah's true mission. Suffering before glory. This is, uh, I, I understand this might not be the, the average challenge to high school graduates, but I believe it is at the core of the gospel. And in this, God is glorified. Just like the Marine Corps says, applications are not accepted here. Commitments only. The commitment in this call to discipleship and following Jesus Christ is something much bigger than uh, the type of shoes we're going to wear, the car we're going to drive, or the house we're going to live in. It is the kind of, of life that truly exemplifies the life of Christ, which is giving everything for God's glory. No matter what the cost, no matter what you're going through, what kind of ridicule you might face in college, or at your job, or in the future graduates, trust that when you embrace present suffering for God's future glory, He will be glorified through you. That is the mission of our Messiah. But it is so hard. It really is. This is why Jesus says in verse 34, look down, He said, and He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after Me, okay, if you're going to follow me, if you believe I'm the, the Christ, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it means this. 
to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So if we are going to embrace present suffering for God's future glory, first we need to see his mission. The people surrounding the disciples that were around, milling about, surmising what Jesus may be, they didn't see it. But we're supposed to see what it really is. That it means to follow him, even to the very end, even to the point of death, persecution, rejection, suffering, whatever the cost. That we need to understand and follow in for the rest of our lives. It's the only thing that will satisfy. Second, how we're going to embrace God's mission, we need to embrace his will. We can't just understand that this is what God has for us in this life. We need to embrace it as his will, his direct orders for our lives. And third, we need to live in the mission. We need to, as Christ says in verse 34, deny self. Love God and love others self-sacrificially. Turn with me quickly to Philippians chapter 2, because this is where the Apostle Paul seems to clearly expose what this verse is really saying. Philippians chapter 2 talks about what it means to love self-sacrificially, love God and love others self-sacrificially in following Jesus Christ. It says, have this attitude in you. Philippians 2 verse 5, it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was fully God, right? But he emptied himself and taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The best part about following in the mission of the Messiah is that God is glorified. He is revealed. He is made known and shown when we choose to embrace what he has for us. No matter what the cost, no matter what happens, no matter how much ridicule or criticism or how many people laugh at us, God is glorified when we stand for Jesus Christ, when we decide to embrace his will, no matter what people say. Rejoice in the present suffering of the cross and follow the Messiah to the end. That's what I really want to convey to you. Looking back on that story of Darlene Dibler Rose, Tears are streaming down her face onto this letter that announced her husband's death. And she had only been at this prison camp for about a year. But news got around. She was highly respected among all the women. She was trilingual, so it would often translate for the Japanese what the other women were saying. And so this prison warden called her into his office. 
This guy had the reputation for being a maniacal ruler. He would just do crazy things and order the women around and have them beaten and flogged, whatever, just for no reason at all. But he called Darlene into his office and he, and he asked her one question. He, he said, I know your husband has died. I just don't want to see the smile leave your face. In that moment of compassion, Darlene saw a chance to maybe do something for God and the call of the gospel even in that place. And she said, can I ask you a question? And he said, yes, which was never to happen. This prison ward never listened to any woman in that prison camp. But he did. And she presented the gospel to this Japanese prison warden. And tears began to stream down his face. So much so that he left the room. If you know anything about Eastern Asian culture, you never show emotion. So he left the room. She stayed there for a while and walked out rejoicing in the suffering that God had given her. And that God somehow, even in that prison camp, was being glorified. And that the gospel was going forth to this, this Japanese warden who never listened to anybody, but listened to her in that moment of her suffering about following Jesus Christ. Things didn't get easy, though, for her. Uh, about six months later, she was accused of being a spy and ended up being transferred to uh, basically what amounted to a death row in another prison camp. And over the sign of the door, it said, this person must die. She stayed there for a whole year, wondering if she was going to be beheaded tomorrow. Just six months before, she found out she was scheduled to be beheaded, excuse me, six weeks before, she was released for reasons she didn't know. She headed back to the U.S. Just one year later, she went right back to Papua New Guinea and served there for 49 more years until she died at 87 years old, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever she went. And the story of God's redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant Messiah who has come to save his people. She embraced present suffering for God's future glory. And that's what I want to encourage you all to do. Make a decision to embrace God's will, to embrace the gospel no matter the cost. It is the only thing that will satisfy. Following Jesus Christ is the most exciting life you can live. To God be the glory. May God's glory be known and his power be shown in and through your lives. And I, I look forward to hearing about how God's going to do that through each of you. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to get into your word and to learn what it means to follow you no matter what the cost, no matter what happens and that you've asked us as your followers to deny yourself, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you no matter what people say, our friends, even our family perhaps, 
no, what, no matter what might happen in the future, to the very end. Lord, I, I pray for these graduates that you would strengthen them and embolden them by your Holy Spirit, that they would be filled with a passionate, zealous love to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth for the rest of their lives, to the praise of your glorious grace. To the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.